0: I'm Sylvia Pong.
1: I'm John Ray Sarapia.
0: You're listening to At the Moment
1: by AZ Media. Hey y'all. Happy APA Heritage Month. I don't know about you, so, but I feel like this APA Heritage Month has been the most visible that I've experienced.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. With the spike in attention around anti-Asian hate, Everyone and their mother is making sure that an Asian face is on their ad. Right. The most memorable ad I saw recently was this large billboard screen in Times Square. Mm. I remember I was coming out of the subway station and I was, I was like going up the escalator. I saw above my head this large screen that said, stop API hate. And it was honestly quite surreal for me because a year ago, I was still in a meeting with some college admin who did not understand Asian American studies as a concept. Mm. And now anti-Asian violence has become mainstream enough to be on a Times Square billboard.
1: Yeah, it's like kind of wild, actually. I mean, I don't know if you saw that Men's Health magazine cover that came out this month. But I think I know what you're talking
0: with, about. <laughs> yes,
1: with Simu Liu. And he was like, the first Asian cover star in, I think, like 10 years or something um, to grace the cover of Men's Health. And I don't know if you saw the pic, but it it looked like his head was literally photoshopped into his own body. I mean,
0: I wouldn't... I I don't want to doubt Simu like that.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, it was his own body for sure, but (laughs) there was just some weird photoshopping going on. Anyways, moral of the story is that there's been a lot of weird APA messaging. And I know that here in AZ, we've been noticing that there's been some messaging in a place that we wouldn't necessarily expect it to be.
0: Mm, Tell them where, John Ray?
1: The U.S. Army. Ooh. Yeah. Currently, their Twitter and Facebook banner has photos of, like, these notable APA veterans, and they've been posting APA-dedicated content all month. Like, on May 14th, they had this short video highlighting Sergeant Shaquan Jones who is an instructor for the 25th Infantry Division of the Hua Ha'a Team. I feel like
2: being in the spotlight and being able to represent where you come from is great where we're going and how we show ourselves as Americans.
0: Don't get me wrong, I definitely don't want to invalidate Sergeant Jyots' story or the pride he feels in sharing his cultural traditions. But I can't help but think about the many wars the U.S. entered in that resulted in lasting scars in countries all over the world. Or the PTSD inflicted on veterans and the infamously insufficient veteran support. And to be honest, I think that if there was one place for Asian Pacific Americans to be underrepresented... I wouldn't mind it being the U.S. military.
1: (laughs) No, I definitely wouldn't mind that either. Seriously, I'm thinking back to our second episode on Southeast Asian migration history. And as we saw there, that is sadly a history full of some of our favorite things like colonization and militarization.
0: And if you can't tell, John Ray's being sarcastic
1: here. Yeah, I am.
0: Luckily for us, in the Council on Foreign Relations brief on the demographics of the military... Asians were found to be underrepresented in enlisted recruits of all parts of the military, which includes the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, and Coast Guard.
1: Okay, but let's not get excited now, Sil, because although this report tells us that there aren't that many Asians in the military, we realize there's something that it obscures. The overrepresentation of Pacific Islanders in the U.S. military.
0: The Council of Foreign Relations only reported data for the three largest racial categories, excluding Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders, since they only represent a cumulative 1% of the military.
1: But proportional to the general population of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders in the U.S., this demographic is the most overrepresented in the U.S. Army by 249%, according to a White House brief from 2018. You want to note, though, that this statistic was cited from the 2005 census data. On top of that, Black folks, poor white folks, and American Indians and Alaskan Natives are also overrepresented.
0: I know the military likes to promote itself as a place of opportunities and as the pinnacle of good old American patriotism. Mm -hmm. But when I see our nation's most marginalized groups overrepresented in the numbers, I can't help but doubt this whole military project.
1: Right. And to interpret the numbers into real life, we talked to Gabrielle Lankilde, who has been pondering these ideas way before we ever have.
2: My name is Gabrielle Lankilde. I go by Gabby for short. Um, I take she, her, hers pronouns. Um, and I am currently about to be a graduate from Harvard studying women, gender, sexuality hey. studies with a minor in sociology. <laughs> but beyond being a student at Harvard, I'm a proud Samoan woman from the beautiful islands of American Samoa. Uh, where
0: I was born and raised. Gabby was finishing up Zoom University for good when we spoke to her.
1: How was it handing in your last assignment?
0: Oh my God, y'all don't
2: even know <laughs> how much I absolutely loathe Zoom and to be done, mm. hopefully, hopefully done for the near future with Zoom. <laughs> oh yeah. Such a such a blessing. So I'm just happy to be done with Zoom. Also kind of happy to be done with Harvard too it was just too much getting to be too much
1: (laughs) I feel that yeah too much is right I'm so happy that she's done I remember how painful it was to get through the final weeks of the semester like that last spring before we graduated so so big ups to Gabby and also if you have any graduate listeners congrats to you all too
0: yes congrats (sighs) y'all
1: And though we know that Zoom schooling has its cons, Mm -hmm. Gabby was at least able to finish her last days as a Harvard student surrounded by her family in American Samoa. So she told us a little bit about what it was like growing up there.
2: Yeah, like I said, I was born and raised in American Samoa. And I think oftentimes people initially think of, you know, the Pacific as just, you know, trees and beautiful ocean Mm -hmm. and this like nice paradise. And There's this idea that's very uh, divided from the people who are living in it and I I just want to highlight that one of the primary characteristics of of growing up here in American Samoa is is that it's so community based. It's very family based, like your community is family, even if they're not related to you by blood and it's quite a small community um, of about, you know, 55 to 60,000 people. Everywhere you go, you're seeing auntie, you're seeing uncle, you're seeing, you're meeting cousins that, you know, maybe you didn't know you had. (laughs) Um, And so to have such a strong family-based, community-based like that is really important. I think it's really shaped who I am today. You know, it's true when they say that it takes a village to raise a child. And I know, like, it truly took a village to raise me and to help me get to where I am today, you know took my parents' support to teach me sacrifice, my my siblings and my cousins laughter and, and fellowship to teach me love and to teach me joy and take in my grandparents' stories to, to teach me the value of honor elders. And so I truly grew up fortunate to have such a strong community. And I think that's what's often missed in common portrayals of the Pacific is it's so divided from the beautiful people, the beautiful community that lives here in the Pacific.
0: Gabby mentioned it was kind of a culture shock going to school in the mainland of the United States, where people were more individualistic and always thinking about what's next. She acknowledges the beauty of community that growing up in American Samoa instills in her.
1: For Gabby... Home is also deeply tied to the U.S. military.
0: Just in living here, growing up here,
2: the army base is right like two minutes from my house Mm. and it's located near the largest high school on the island. It's like right across the street. And so in addition to that, the U.S. military is in your homes too. Like your aunties, your uncles, your parents, your grandparents were all probably in the military. I know that's true of my family. And so... The U.S. military's presence is so large in American
0: Samoa and in so many distinct ways. That seems really intense.
1: Yeah, it does. Did you have a similar experience, though?
0: I don't remember seeing military recruiters in my high school at all. Yeah. I think it probably has to do with the fact that I went to a relatively well-resourced public Mm. high school.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can say the same. I don't remember seeing any of them in my high school either, but I definitely knew that they existed. And that practice just never sat right with me. Yeah. And the worst part is that like a lot of times these recruiters are straight up predatory about who they target. Mm. So they tend to target like immigrants, students from poor families and people of color. The No Child Left Behind Act also gives military recruiters access to students' personal information. And that allows them to recruit at public schools where they often spend time with students during classes, breaks and even their extracurricular activities.
0: Oh, I'm not about that.
1: No. (laughs) But yeah, the Department of Defense is pretty shady. According to the ACLU of New York, the department spends millions of dollars a year on this program called Joint Advertising and Marketing Research and Studies, which is basically created to collect info about people between 16 and 25 years old for military recruitment purposes. So parents can opt their children under 18 out of these programs, but like, damn, the fact that I didn't even know that I was opted in in the first place.
0: Seriously. And when we think about how the government enables the military to recruit in schools with getting them physically in schools to accessing data about students, it's no wonder that Gabby felt pressure to enlist in the military growing up.
2: Growing up, I really wanted, I always knew I wanted to go on to to higher education. And so my family is actually quite supportive of that. But not every family is. And I think even Outside of the ways in which my family was very supportive of me, you still had pressure to join the military. is a lot, right? Then yeah. that really shows you how big of a presence that there is here. Mm-hmm. And it, like I was saying before, it's it's in things like the military bases being next to the largest high school, being across the street from the largest high school on our island. It's in things like our kids having so much more access to taking the ASVAB than the SAT.
0: The ASVAB is the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, which is a test that folks have to take to join the military. Before talking to Gabby, did you ever hear about the ASVAB when you were in high school?
1: No, I've never heard of these tests.
0: (laughs) We were just like nodding like, yes, Gabby, we know exactly what you're talking about.
1: (laughs) I was just like, Okay. Whoa, these tests aren't intense. Yeah,
0: and when I heard Gabby say that, I was honestly so shocked about how persistently and intentionally the military recruits. Mm. I feel like this also goes hand in hand with how in the United States, different communities are presented with different opportunities.
2: At least once a month, I was seeing them roam around school. And they were always there at career days as well. Um, Mm. Multiple branches were always at career days. Like, what does that tell you as a child growing up? When you're constantly seeing the military presented to you as an option, as one of your only options, too. And I described it in my column as kind of like this need to join the military to be considered, quote unquote, successful.
1: This so-called need to join that Gabby talks about might come from the fact that, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, American Samoa has the highest rate of military enlistment of any U.S. state or territory. Just let that sink in. Any state or territory. Part of what could contribute to this is the state of American Samoa's economy. The economy used to be highly dependent on the tuna canning industry, but is now struggling after some key expert companies left due to trade agreements and foreign competition. With these key players gone, the median household income is now estimated to be around $22,000 a year. So. Couple of struggling economy with a starting salary of sixteen thousand dollars, free room and board, enlistment bonuses, and full medical benefits, and you have a really enticing recipe for success, courtesy of the U.S. Army.
2: While well, I criticize the military a lot, I I never criticize any individual, especially here in American Samoa, their decision to to join the military, especially when it was one of the only options presented to them, and one of the options to. To provide for their families which is an admirable choice and it's just unfortunate and sad that that is one of the only ways that our children see as as viable as a way to to provide for their families to live what does it mean too when you feel like you have to get out of your home there's you know idea of like the American dream and you have to be in the mainland to leave what people here call you know the islands called the rock you have to leave the rock and so Mm -hmm. you know that's another way in which the U.S. continues to colonize our minds as to paint the mainland as final destination and not your own home as being enough for you to love being enough for you to live in and settle in and The idea that you have to join the military in order to get there, to get to that American dream, to get to that place.
0: You're listening to At The Moment, Asian American News. I'm Sylvia Pong, co-host at AZ Media. In this episode, we spoke to the wonderful, the brilliant Gabrielle Linkelde about the militarization of American Samoa. Through our conversation, we covered shady military recruitment practices, decolonizing education, and revisited the contentious term, AAPI. If you'd like to learn more about the other stories I've reported on, check out our fourth episode on what you need to know about anti-Asian violence. Thank you for listening. For many Pacific Islanders in recent years, the final destination of chasing the American dream via the military has often been grim. The PBS docuseries America by the Numbers by Maria Hinojosa on the militarization of Guam discusses that roughly 50% of returning veterans say that they struggle with physical or mental health problems due to their service, and as many as one in five suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder. And on top of that, Pacific Islanders have suffered the highest casualty rates in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan.
1: And beyond the series, researchers have found that Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander veterans tend to report higher rates of PTSD in general than that of Asian American veteran groups and white veterans.
0: Something else that Gabby mentioned that really unsettled me is how the military capitalizes on some American Samoas' search for national belonging.
2: There definitely is this idea of U.S. patriotism and that gets preached through the military, right? Mm. So what does that mean when that gets adopted by our own people, this idea of serving your country when that country really is not ours? We are fighting another white man's war that is ending up killing us. It's killing our people, not only killing our people, but the military is one of the highest contributors to climate change with the amount of fossil fuels and Mm -hmm. um, just toxic gases. In fact, I think... I read somewhere that contributes maybe more toxic fuels and fossil fuels to the atmosphere than several countries. And so what does it mean when the Pacific is on the front lines of climate change, and yet its people is one of the highest contributors to the military?
1: There's a lot that Gabby said here that's really important. But what I want to hone in on is the sad reality of climate change's impact on American Samoa. The majority of American Samoa resides along the coastline, which means that any rise in sea level can basically displace most of the population.
0: Climate change also makes ocean waves reach further inland, and we've already seen the devastating effects of this when a deadly tsunami struck in two thousand nine, which rising sea levels made even worse. And so,
2: you're fighting for this dream to go off to live in this mainland, this mainland where its primary ideology is killing our people. This American dream that is killing our people, that is taking our land, is sinking our land. And so it's just it's it's a lot, I think. <laughs> if I go yeah. on, I'll make it just start getting depressed. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. I, but yeah. There's so many I think what a lot of people don't realize is to see these different connections between especially militarism and our survival. Militarism and climate change and we're not taught to see these connections especially because that's the way american empire works is not to to teach you to see the ways in which it's killing you
0: we ask Abby what she thinks perpetuates in american samoa the nauseating myth that is the american dream
2: That comes a lot from the ways in which we are not taught our history. We're not taught the really, the cruel ways in which the U.S. military has treated our islands. And so we're not taught the ways in which, too, our Pacific people have resisted against the U.S. military. I think of, especially in American Samoa and independent Samoa, too. Yeah, now there's two Samoas because of the ways colonization split us. Those
0: arbitrary borders (laughs) that were just drawn all across the world when colonization happened.
2: Exactly. And so, you know, we're
0: not, especially when I'm
2: thinking about anti-military resistance, you know, both Samoa and American Samoa, of course, Samoa was, independent Samoa was dealing with military force by New Zealand. But still, you still have both in those two places, there was, movements in the 1930s against militarization of their islands in American Samoa against the U.S. Navy and in Samoa against the New Zealand militarization because of the ways in which they were treating our people, taking away matai titles, chief titles, which first of all, I don't even know how you do that when you're not even Samoan. (laughs) And then not only that, like restricting the ways in which people couldn't even publicly meet. And Mm -hmm. also you know not having a say in how they were even governed some of people organized together to resist against these military forces and that's not we don't learn about that at all we don't learn about that in schools we learn about you know how we're fortunate to be considered a part of the US
1: we'll be right back this episode is brought to you by az media at AZ Media, we're committed to bringing marginalized stories to the forefront. If you want to show your support, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen, and please consider donating to our coffee page. Our coffee page will be linked in our show notes.
0: I'm going to ask you kind of a big question, which it's not your burden to figure out, but what do you think the military or the U.S. in general should be doing to support American Samoan people and communities?
2: Yeah, that's, um, that's a big one. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think initially when I, when I think of, like, what could the U.S. military do, I think a lot of time I think, oh, I just wish it would disappear, like, just leave.
1: <laughs> just <Pacific> leave. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and, you know, again, it's not as simple as that, right? Because... Mm. Now our economy, our people rely so heavily on the U.S. military. Our economy relies so much on the U.S.'s federal support of American Samoa. And so it's tough because as much as, you know, we're, we're dealing with how dependent we become because of the ways they've colonized us. And so like it's not as easy as just get out now. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really wish it was, <laughs> but it's really not. And so... Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest ways that they could support us is revolutionizing the educational system, is changing the history you teach, and not only to our people, but throughout the U.S. Because nobody learns about Pacific history, like what you learn about maybe like Hawaii and that's it. Maybe there's a paragraph dedicated to that. Like when I went to Harvard, too, people didn't even know what American Samoa was Like that really shows you how devalued the Pacific is in the U.S.'s eyes, Mm -hmm. right? That goes again to the fact that, you know, our Pacific kids really internalize this devaluing of our people, of our history, because it gets reinforced in our education. Every year you're in school, you see how little your history is valued, that it doesn't even make it into the textbook. It doesn't even make a sentence in your textbook.
1: Although we have a lot of divergent experiences, I see some parallels between Gabby's story and a lot of other Asian American experiences.
0: Yeah, I do too. And on that note, John Ray, there's this elephant in the room that we have yet to address all episode. Hmm. So we're called, at the moment, Asian American News. And the AZ Mission Statement is sparking conversation, inspiring action amongst Asian Americans. Some listeners may think, yeah, it makes total sense that they're doing an episode about American Samoa because Asian American Pacific Islander, or AAPI, is a label we've all heard before.
1: Right. But the linkage between Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders under this huge AAPI umbrella term is really anything but self evident. Seattle Times columnist Naomi Ishisaka recently wrote an op ed called Why It's Time to Retire the Term Asian Pacific Islander.
0: Ishisaka talks about how. The API term didn't materialize until the 1980s, when the U.S. Census expanded the definition, presumably to be more inclusive by grouping Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders together into the category we know today as Asian Pacific Islander.
1: But by 1997, the Federal Office of Management and Budget changed it back to have separate categories for Asian and Native Hawaiian and other Pacific Islander. But the umbrella terms API and APA have stuck.
0: We first reached out to speak to Gabby. One of the first things she mentioned to us was that she could only speak in the American Samoa context, which is vastly different from the experience of Native Hawaiians, Guam, and really any other Pacific island.
2: <laughs> There's a lot to unpack with the API term. I think I really didn't think a lot about it until I got to college especially with trying to find what uh, cultural organization you are a part of. I think that's one of the biggest times that I really came to,
0: mm.
2: came to terms with it was um, Pacific Islanders are highly underrepresented in higher education. But because of the AAPI term, especially when we get grouped with um, Asian Asian Americans, that doesn't get seen as much. We get kind of subsumed under that. We're invisibilized, essentially. That happens a lot, I think in so many different ways. And the ways I just mentioned and the ways our history gets invisibilized in textbooks. But I think the AAPI label is another way in which Pacific Islanders get invisibilized.
0: But Gabby also contemplates the potential harm of completely doing away with AAPI as a term because these umbrella terms have been a tool for organizing and continue to let those who were othered name their collective erasure. It's tough
2: to again because... Because of colonization as well, we are forced to organize under these labels in order to, for political purposes as well, to gain reforms that are needed for our peoples. I guess the theme of just like what I'm saying all the time is like (laughs) screw colonization.
1: (laughs) We should honestly just make screw colonization our tagline.
0: Yeah. Wait, I'm kind of a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Let's change it now. (laughs) Anyway, jokes aside. Throughout the production of this episode, we too needed to confront the fact that our team doesn't include any American Samoans nor Pacific Islanders and how our biases and limited perspectives impact our ability to center Gabby's voice.
1: For Gabby, the issue of less than ideal labels doesn't end at the APA or Pacific Islander label. She's still grappling with her relationship to the U.S. American identity.
2: There's this big question of should American Samoa have citizenship, especially when we Mm -hmm. are contributing so much to the U.S. military? And it's a topic of much contention here.
1: American Samoa is a U.S. territory similar to Guam and Puerto Rico, but it's also the only U.S. territory where residents have no birthright claim to citizenship. Instead, American Samoans are granted U.S. national status. This status basically means American Samoans can't vote for U.S. president run for office outside of American Samoa, or apply for certain jobs, makes it particularly hard for those who have migrated to the U.S., as they need to go through this really long, drawn-out process to become naturalized citizens.
0: Exactly. American Samoans born on the island do not automatically become U.S. citizens.
2: It's interesting because I know... One of the reasons it blew up this question, especially in the mainland, was because I think, was it John Oliver did some kind of segment? Please don't even get automatic citizenship, meaning the American part of American Samoa is really just a title that doesn't mean anything, like People's Choice Award nominee or social media expert. Just <laughs> devoid of meaning. On um, Yes, <laughs> yeah, where he, he, he was trying to vouch for why American, uh, people in American Samoa should have citizenship. And it's interesting because a lot of people here actually don't agree with that. I'm not saying this will be an easy thing to do. I'm just saying we've figured out a lot more complicated things in the last 114 years. Think
1: about it.
0: It's just like, of course, you know, John Oliver, I know he means well, but, you know, the white man is Mm -hmm. always thinking that everybody wants to join the Mm -hmm. West. And it's like, what if we Mm -hmm. don't want your citizenship? Mm
2: -hmm. When we did agree to join the U.S., was... One of the biggest things our Matai or our chiefs wanted was still wanted control of our land. That was one of the biggest things, because mm-hmm. I think seeing us in the Pacific and the U.S.'s history of brute force in taking For land. Sure. One of the things our yes. chiefs were like, that's not going to happen to us, which is still the case today, actually, where you have to be someone to own land um, mm-hmm. here. And so because of that, we're in this weird limbo where we're not... An unorganized, unincorporated territory. Um, so there's a lot of like blurriness that, between our relationship with the U.S. And so our people are U.S. nationals as opposed to U.S. citizens. And so in order to gain this U.S. citizenship, what not a lot of people understand is that we have to become an organized territory, which means we have to have an organic act. What a lot of people are afraid of is that all the things in the U.S. Constitution would also apply to us, which it doesn't today. And so one of the things right. that people are afraid of is the Equal Protections Act ruling out or finding this land law of someone's only only land as unfair, as unequal, as being overruled. And so what a lot of people are afraid of is, with U.S. citizenship, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our land, too?
1: This fear is valid. Because American Samoans don't have an explicit directive from Congress on how to self-govern, they've been able to set up their own constitution in 1967 and also hold their own constitutional elections. Most importantly, they've protected their land from foreign investment and property developers by avoiding the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment.
0: This may sound counterintuitive because the Equal Protection Clause is one of the parts of the Constitution that we were taught to admire. But if this was imposed on American Samoa, then it would eradicate a unique land ownership system that literally predates American capitalism.
1: Yeah, and this next part was so interesting for me to learn. But most property in American Samoa is actually owned communally among families. Ooh. Yeah, these families select chiefs who are charged with regulating village life and overseeing a lot of the land, basically just ensuring that the ecosystem within the village is fair and that the people have access to the land that they need. And this system has worked for centuries. And to protect it, American Samoan law restricts the sale of most property to anyone with less than 50% American Samoan ancestry. Since this is technically a racial restriction, this would definitely not fly in U.S. courts if American Salmon were to be granted citizenship.
2: So what a lot of people are afraid of is, with U.S. citizenship, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for our land too? And also, what does that mean for our cultural identity? Does that get erased as well? Yeah, and so there is this really complex... History, this very complex kind of blurry relationship between the U.S. and American Samoan, and so it's really tough to navigate. I think, and is it's not as as easy as well we should have citizenship because of how much we contribute to the U.S. military, and it's a conversation that has been going on here for quite a while. I think it's another way in which you know now the U.S. military. And our contribution to them is being used as a justification for having US citizenship, which could possibly take our land and take our cultural identity with it. And so there's the US military again messing things up.
0: (laughs) That is the theme of our episode. (laughs) We can laugh and say, oh, colonization. But at the end of the day, the systems that make up colonization are deeply entrenched and insidious.
1: Yeah.
0: I guess, like for me, it's kind of fascinating to see how the constitution, you know, something we prize so much, like we say it's democracy, but in the wrong context, it's literally like instilling capitalism in a society that has like managed to not fall into the pitfalls of property ownership and like mm-hmm. function perfectly fine. Yeah, Our conversation with Gabby truly shows the ubiquitous nature of the U.S. colonial violence, but also the abundant ways people have resisted and remained resilient through large movements small mundane choices and fugitive thoughts. In spite the restraints placed by colonization, American Samoa moves forward in community and remains undefinable by colonial labels.
1: We asked Gabby what's next for her.
0: Yeah, so I guess I'm graduating
2: soon, um, next week actually, and... I'm kind of exhausted from school, so I'm going to take a break.
0: <laughs> you deserve it. <laughs> take it,
2: please. It's relatable, I'm a, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take a year off. I have plans to be in New Zealand for a fellowship. Um, <gasps> that sounds great. Yeah, I'm really excited. Actually, to the fellowship, will be creating my own podcast too, uh, which is why I'm. <laughs> so oh really my god. To be. Yeah, so I was actually really. It was just so cool to get this email from y'all to be a podcast guest and I think I'm definitely learning a lot too about you know what I should do when I do create my own podcast but I actually will be doing my podcast about it'll be called Pacifica Resilience and so it'll be stories of Pacific Islander success and resilience as the ways in which you know success is not only defined as this linear route and I want to explore kind of the ways in which our people are so resilient and have always been successful they've come in community with their own family and things like that and so so that's what I'll be doing for a year and so I'm just taking it one step at a time right now so we'll see how far this podcasting goes and whatever comes afterwards I think is just a matter of enjoying where I'm at and prioritizing my own mental health and I think that's what I would say to other people too is really take care of yourself and find community because that's what's going to sustain you in the long run.
0: it's a wrap you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at az.media
1: this episode was produced by Cynthia Liu Blake Lou Merwin and Stacey Wong edited by Cynthia Liu story research led by Sylvia Pong and reporting by John Ray Serafio supported by Saho Nisha and Alina Panik scripting by Blake Lou Merwin our theme music is by Satoru Ono cover art by Susu Schwaber special thanks to Tiffany Huang Nevada Tenetti Alice Liu and Sabine Shawani I'm your host, John Ray Serapio.
0: And I'm Sylvia Pong. Thank you for listening.
1: And join us next time to talk about Andrew Yang.
0: Bye, y'all.